This is advertising content. Get crude. It's your ticket to the ruthless world of filmmaking. You're the producer. Crew up your movie to win. And you need to get your crew together to make your epic film. Draw cards to find your actor and your director. Disaster strikes on your movie set. A flash flood. A writer strike. All the while, staying on budget. Good luck. Get crew today at getcrew.com. That's G-E-T-C-R-E-W-D.com. Use our promo code. Get 20 percent off get crude the card game promo code talking pictures that's in all caps game is rated pg-13 is for three to eight players now back to our show with paul booth because you never know what will happen on set You're now listening to the Talking Pictures Podcast, broadcasting from sunny Orange County, California. Filmmaker, journalist, and film historian, Paul Booth. Aloha. Welcome to Talking Pictures with Paul Booth. I'm your host. So happy to be here today with our guest, writer-director Nick Fackler. Welcome, Nick. How are you today? I'm great today. Thank you for asking. Awesome. Very happy to hear that. The main reason you're here is this Hidden Places, and tell us a little bit about it. I would call them, they're a short film series, kind of a genre-wise, I'd say they're experimental dance films are the are the genre. But they, all, they each have a narrative, and they have slowly were made over the last five years, and we discovered, uh, you know, maybe the best way to present them is as a series. So uh, we we worked with this company called Altered.tv. That's a streaming service that uh, was looking for more experimental uh, things to stream, kind of like expand their horizon. And, uh, you know, I reached out and said, hey, I got something you guys might like. Okay, so this five years, was it before the pandemic or is the pandemic mixed into that? Pandemic is mixed in, definitely. I think there was two that we filmed before the pandemic and one that we filmed during the pandemic towards the later half. What would you say would be the, you know, the pristine nugget that came for you from the pandemic? The pristine nugget might not even had to come from being a filmmaker. It was just being able to take a break was really nice. It was the pristine nugget. But, you know, when we were brainstorming ideas for the third film in the series, which is called Hidden Places, the name of the, the third film is like the namesake of the whole series. You know, it was a lot about what we had all been dealing with over the last couple of years, like there was, there's some imagery in it and emotions to me that really evoked kind of that stage that we were at, you know, with being stuck in a house, communicating through a computer and feeling that uh, sort of anxiety slowly building and building and building, you know, not being able to go outside, not being able to like go into restaurants, not being able to, you know, seeing friends was this whole ordeal. And I think that, created a lot of anxiety. And so the, the film itself is kind of loosely about that. So I think when people saw it, they go, oh, I get this. I get what this character is going through. You know, it's interesting because I'm just glad that we haven't seen as many specific pandemic films as I thought there would be. Yeah. I will say that was interesting, and I'm, I want to see how this plays into the film, the cinematography. Like, I feel there's this odd darkness that, you know, as humans, we weren't supposed to understand during the pandemic. Those really weird days when it was like, will we hang out with this friend again? Will we go here again? Will we fly again? So when you mentioned the word experimental, 
it always makes me think of jazz. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you're also a musician, so I know there's, I had a friend who used to say, if you mess up a note, you're off key. But if you're, if you're a jazz musician, you just meant to do it. So, <laughs> so with experimental films, where do you kind of draw that line on? It's not experimenting. Like I've always wanted, I've never really talked to an experimental filmmaker to know like, what is planned and what's not? Where do you feel you can get away with something? Yeah. I mean, the way I look at experimental films, for me personally, as a, as a filmmaker and an artist, is doing something that I've never done before, doing something that I don't have a reference point for. You know, that's the experiment side. Like, as, you know, as a filmmaker, I go, have I seen this in a film before? And I, that, those are kind of the little nuggets of filmmaking I, I'm always looking for, you know, like what hasn't been done, what, what, what hasn't been explored further and I'm going to, I'm going to try it, you know? And so to me, that's what experimental is. It's like trying something that hasn't been done before. It might not look good, but that's the experiment side. You know, it's also sometimes you use it as a blanket statement for like, I don't know what genre this is. <laughs> <laughs> these are films where there's no dialogue all the sort of story is told through dance which was new for me as a filmmaker like that was an experiment like how do i the idea was let's get rid of all the dialogue and replace the dialogue with with dance and then let's make it surreal you know like let's let's have the stories be cerebral and you know the dancing also symbolizes and the dancers symbolize you know, parts of the mind and, you know, the spirit of our psyche and soul. And, and so those are kind of the, the, the overall concepts for the filmmaking approach. And then you pick a storyline and, you know, try to tell that story with right. just the, those, uh, with the, inside that box, you know. And to me, that's the, that's the experiment. And, and you do hit a wrong note every once in a while and my my uh a guitarist friend of mine said you know if you ever hit a wrong note just quickly hit the right one right afterwards <laughs> yeah. then I it like sounds that. intentional that sounds intentional so that was kind of you know in the editing room i i also look at it I, i'm an editor as well I, I i edited everything and there is definitely a part of the experimenting that comes into the editing process you know like i you know, I've got these five different shots of the same dance scene. How do I right. put them together and how do I incorporate color and how do I incorporate light? And, you know, ex you know, I do a lot of experimenting with finding, uh, you know, like I'll be on set and be like, well, let's, let's take the lens off the camera and film that wall that has all this beautiful colored light, you know, or, and let's sort of film that, or let's put a really, really long lens on the camera and shoot into that to see if you look right there, it's all just mixed up and there's a lot of these weird fractals happening. And then I try to have a collection of those sort of like surreal, interesting uh, blurs of uh, shots. And then I incorporate those into the film as well. And so there's, there's experimenting when it comes to that too. Wow, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I wow, I'm really, I really, I never really thought about that, and I'm thinking of some of the visuals of. I mean, do you have a do you have a painting background, or is that just more like it? Uh, is that more like your cinematographer? What, what kind of what was their background to do this experiment with filming? I've I've worked with a few different cinematographers. Ben, this uh, this DP Ben Dricky shot the three dance films, and then I work with Sean Kirby who shot 
my features. And Sean Kirby does have a, a painting background. And so he's always uh, excited to experiment. And, you know, I mean, most, most DPs, I find if they want to do things that they haven't done before, too. I mean, I think most artists and filmmakers want to be pushed to, they don't want to do the same thing every time. And if you can present a challenge, I think most, that's the funnest part. So, you know, as we go through the process, like with the DP, I'll say, here's the colors I want to use. Like, and now let's use those to light the scenes, but also let's look at like, how can we create abstract, unique visuals using these colors as well? And they, I've worked with them long enough too, where they're, they're expecting me to be like, hey, everybody stop. Let's go shoot that weird light that's coming in on the wall right there. We got to get it because it's going to be gone soon because the sun, but it's right. coming through this weird cup, you know, and you, it's like creating something that's pleasing to look at, you know, and, and right. gives you a, gives you a feeling when you're looking at it. And so I'm always trying to capture, capture that. And to me, that's experimental too. You know, that's part of the experimental part of it. I have to agree with you on that. I've been fortunate to interview a number, a lot of cinematographers and I have always enjoyed that that kind of, not whatever, but, you know, kind of they're willing to just try something and do this genre maybe one time. Maybe I can't stand this genre, but it'd be interesting to do it. To challenge. Yeah, to challenge, to adapt, to learn. I've, I've talked to some guys where they're like, they have this really great film. It's known everything. Uh, they're like, oh, that wasn't interesting to me. I'm like, wow, that was your work when you weren't interested <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I really like about, um, and also too, I just, in film school, I could not grasp cinematography, mm -hmm. um, the, you know, the mathematical scientific nature of it, F stops, blah, blah, blah. So I love that I get to interview, you know, people and filmmakers when you're talking about the cinematography stuff, cause I can practically get it and relate as a viewer but then it's just like yeah if you gave me a camera and a light i'd be lost so yeah me too i tried during that was a during the pandemic i uh shot a short another dance film that's it's not a part of the series but my wife and i shot a film in our living room and i had shot i had ben uh ben Dricky drop off a camera and drop off lights and i tried to shoot it myself and by the time i was done i was like yeah i'm i'm really glad i'm not dp this is this is too much <laughs> roger deakins wasn't calling you for advice <laughs> no no i was on the phone a lot with him being like i can't get it in focus what's going on <laughs> yeah it's it seems just it really seems to me like it's something you get or don't so that leads me to why dance Oh, that's that's an easy answer. It's because of my uh, my wife is a dancer, and so I I didn't know a lot about dance and modern and contemporary dance, and I married a modern and contemporary dance sort of, huh. and she runs a, a dance collective called TBD Dance Collective, and those are all the dancers and the collaborators from these films. So I really found myself immersed in it, and. It was really their idea in the first place to say, let's make a film. The first experiment, they said, well, let's do this experiment where you film one of our dances, okay? Get the wide, get the close-ups, just like get all the coverage you need to do one of our choreographed pieces, but then you edit it in a totally different way. So you make a brand new dance, like a remix, you know? Like, And then so that was the, our first time working together and kind of experimenting. And it kind of taught me this whole new style of editing that I wasn't used to. And it really challenged me and pushed me as an editor. And I kind of fell in love with experimenting on like, oh, what if I like take this, this same dance, you know, and I layer like that dance with four frames off. So it creates this sort of like delay 
in it, you know? And then I, and then I started doing all these delay things. And I was like, oh, what if I sort of like do these hiccups where I take four frames and just loop them? And so then it's like, and then on top of that, I'll add the delay. And then I'll take that weird color that I shot and put that on top of it all. So you end up just having this sort of collage of color and movement and things like that. And so that's how it all started. And then as, as we continue to collaborate with myself as a filmmaker and my wife and her, and her dance collective, uh, it eventually turned into these films. Oh, interesting. Well, tell us where we can see these right now. Uh, you can watch all three of them on a website called altered.tv. It's A-L-T-R-D dot TV. If you go to it and see a bunch of uh, drug culture things you've come to the right place because it's uh, they kind of specialize in drug culture and psychedelia and things like that right. so that the, the second film i made feature film was a documentary called sick birds they easy and it was about the psychedelic plant called iboga in africa and so this altered.tv was a fan of mine and they wanted to play sick birds that easy on their network and then that's what led to this. And I said, well, how about you put these like psychedelic dance films on there too? And wow. that sort of like opened up the doors for us to work together. And so you can sign up for Alter TV. It's free. And then you can watch the, uh, or you can pay for it too. And then you can watch the dance films on there. Five months from now, they'll also go up on, on Amazon and Apple. But Alter nice. TV has the, the first dibs. Oh, that's cool. Well, it, it said in the bio psychedelic and i know it's we're we're moving into a new place in the world now with what they're finding out that lsd does and mushrooms and a uh, great series on netflix called how to change your mind um yeah talk yep. about ecstasy actually yeah um i oh, don't yeah. care i'm i'm 40 something years old and it was when i was 20 but i could watch these shows and relate to some stuff i'm from hawaii so yes yeah, it's, it's never too late paul i know <laughs> we're not uh, one to knock drugs that sounded yeah. bad but um, when for the mind and going out to enjoy the world. Um, yeah, oh, so yeah. I saw that and I found that very interesting. What would you like to talk about with that? Oh, you know, I um, you know, also just got back from Switzerland. So I'm currently working on a documentary on uh, medical psychedelic plants as well. Uh, that's sort of a side, side project right now that's kind of going along with everything else. But I went to Davos, Switzerland, where the World Economic Forum's held, and... It's the first time that medical psychedelics have been talked about uh, at such a big event. You know, it's the yeah. World Economic Forum. It's 95% of the world's wealth. Politicians, world leaders, CEOs, billionaires, they're all coming together to discuss how to improve the state of the world. And this is the first time where all these top minds of uh, psychedelic drug research were there as well. And so I went there and interviewed all these amazing people that have been involved in uh, the science of psychedelic plants for the last 50 years. And, and now they're really, it, it's, it's happening. You know, basically the fact that it's being talked about at Davos is a sign that we're, it's, it's slowly going to be legalized and, uh, and a uh, business is going to be built around it for better or worse right. doing a sort of, it's kind of like a pilot for a series potentially, or a, a kind of a short, longer, short film. But, um, I've always been interested in this kind of stuff. It's 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 all fascinating to me, and and I'm definitely an advocate for uh, feeling like these plants shouldn't should not have been made illegal. And I think they've been a cornerstone bioculture in 
civilization for thousands of years and and right. we shouldn't get rid of them and throw them away shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> no but it's very um like and this is this probably the most controversial examples i've heard was like mike tyson talk i think it was about mushrooms talking dmt like, yeah getting anger in control and then i saw this special on real sports where the guy was having concussions suicidal thoughts ptsd yep went and did a trip couple of trips came out it was like oh my grandma came to me and told me i'd be fine and i was like okay grandma so i think it's what's key and has this is all going on is the because i hear people conversing about it and they don't say medically hanging out with doctors blah 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 i don't i don't remember if it was real sports saying it could reverse it but if you're like losing your mind there's what do you do you know about this oh yeah this is a uh, this i'm deep into it <laughs> yeah right i mean it's one thing if you're in a room with doctors and they can stop you mm -hmm. and you can, as opposed to you're just out with your friends walking around town. And, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's interesting to me because having 20 years ago tried some of these things and in Hawaii people just love mushrooms. And when my brother was younger, he did, you know, acid and all these things were around. And, and so it's so interesting now to hear it uh, medicinally. And, you know, I'm in a state where they still treat CBD like it's weed. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I am, too. My head spins at the thought that they'll ever be okay with acid because it's like, dude, your, your doctors give you crap about CBD gummies. Yeah. The way that it'll be implemented and the way it should be implemented is it shouldn't be rolled out the way that cannabis was rolled out. It shouldn't be looked at as a vice. It shouldn't be looked at as alcohol or a party drug or a social drug. It, it should be researched first and foremost. Like, Right. Take LSD. Don't make LSD legal to just sell it Seven <laughs> Eleven. Make right. let scientists and let people study it right. and see what's possible to be done with it. Because here's some of the things that can be done with it. PTSD. You know that's a huge one. Yeah. Trauma victims. Yeah. Huge one. Alzheimer's and dementia. You know what what these things can do that the scientific side is it like LSD you take LSD it floods your brain with blood and it allows all these neurons to sort of reconnect that have been slowly disconnecting you know it's it makes your brain and this is this is the science this is the stage of science we're at right now of understanding it makes your brain has have more plasticity to it you know, when you're a baby, your brain has a lot of plasticity. So it's learning and it can learn hyper fast, you know, then it, it starts to harden, you know, and things get stuck in place. Like a trauma happens, you get abused as a child, you know, something like that. And that starts the process of hardening your brain. Then you get our age, Paul, and our brain is totally locked in. It's like, this is how the world is. This is how I am. I can't change. And then horrible things can get locked in alcoholism, drug addiction, trauma, PTSD, and then what the, you know, what this, what these things can do is flood your brain with this blood, allow you to have this relief and have all these neurons reconnect. If you're an Alzheimer's or a dementia patient, they've had these cases where people just wake back up. You know, it's so funny because if you've seen Lovely Still, <laughs> it's sort of the, it's sort of about what Lovely Still is about, but I, we just sort of, it's, it's, when I did Lovely Still, I had no, I was had zero interest in psychedelic chemicals, and now here I am later in my career, and there's you know they're using LSD to sort of cure Alzheimer's and dementia, or at least bring your grandparent or your parent back for a moment to give them life again before it wears off and they return back. Okay. But what the scientists could do if they are allowed to, if we can make it 
not against the law to study these things is like you take this maybe it's not LSD but maybe it's something similar to it if the chemists can continue to experiment and find a way like well maybe you can have all the benefits to your brain and to your mental state without having to like see God (laughs) like and have the trees start talking to you and you know maybe they can get if you don't want that stuff Right. You know, we might be able to phase it out. You know, and there's there's arguments here that some people are like, no, that's the stuff you need, but that, that's that gets into the culture behind it, and that can be discussed. But the most important thing for me is, don't make it illegal for people to research this stuff. Right. Well, also too, I don't, I don't, I couldn't. I mean, again, speaking from somebody who hasn't specifically read about it, but Lord knows I've watched enough films, know enough San Francisco hippies. Um, <laughs> I think the biggest part that would never return of the culture is. We're nowhere near as mellow or cool as we were. They are, are in the '60s. We're not as kind to others as they were in the '60s. So, I think it would be a much different trip if everybody. I mean, I don't even want to know what would happen right now if everybody was doing acid and <laughs> doing the same things. I mean, it's just maybe we'd be a lot more kinder. Well, no, but <laughs> I know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like I was laughing when they were talking on how to change your mind about. Um, they took this group of people and put them on ecstasy and then told them like really bad things and they were like accepting of it because their brain couldn't access these bad areas. Yeah. You know, lovely still, it brings me to when we're looking at changes and what people go through. I mean, what stuck out for me, and I hope I had this right, you were 23 when you made that? Correct. Yeah, and you're working with Martin Landau, Ellen Burstyn. What comes up in my mind is, I don't mean this the way it sounds because I was 23 once too, but what is going on in a 22, 23-year-old brain to be dealing with that subject matter. That really intrigued me. Yeah, I, uh, you know, it's funny when I watch Lovely Still, because occasionally I'll, I'll have to sit in the theater and watch it if it's screening somewhere, you know, and and it's I watch it and I'm like, man, this is such a 23-year-old made this. You know, I could, <laughs> I could I'm watching it and I'm like, man, I was so, I can tell it's made by a kid. Uh, but what what I wanted to do was I wanted to tell a love story and I wanted to make a film that I, no one would expect me to make, you know, I, I wanted to come out the gates making something to let, you know, people know who I am. You know, this is 20, this is 20 year old Nick, you know, so I, you know, you're, you're young. I was young and eager and wanted to make a name for myself. Right. And, and I didn't want to tell a story about people my age. I was like, I can't stand people my age. They're boring to me. They're whiny. <laughs> and, who I love. I love my grandma and grandpa. I love my elders in my life. And let's tell the same story that I, you know, as I, cause I wrote it when I was 17 and I wrote it when I was falling in love, you know, like having that first girlfriend, all those firsts, my, you know, and I wanted to be writing about it, you know, as, as a young filmmaker, I was like, I'm, I'm feeling in love. I should write you know, I should use this energy and I should write. So I started writing a story about someone falling in love for the first time. But I was like, who the heck wants to see a 17-year-old fall in love? Like, that's boring. So how do I write this story and make it different? And that's when I was like, well, what if there's a man? And there was actually, I worked as a waiter at the time and at, at a diner. And there was an old man who came in every day and I talked to him. And we were his family, the wait staff, because he didn't have a family. He'd never been married. He'd never been in love. And I was like, there it is. That's my story. That guy right there. Wow. And so I just took my experience of falling in love for the first time 
and just sort of laid it on top of, in my hypotheses was like, love doesn't change. The feeling of falling in love doesn't change. When you're 78 years old or 17 years old, if you're falling in love, that's a that's an experience that we can share together across. You know, I, I I'll let you know if it's true when I'm 78. But <laughs> but that was the hypothesis yeah. of of what I was going for. And then and then of course, like as as I continued to write, it was pulling from all these things. Like it's a Christmas film, and so I was also pulling from these memories of Christmas and childhood and those films that I loved growing up. And then there's a big twist ending at the end. I'm not sure if you got to the end, but let me tell you, but there's a big twist ending where the genre of the film changes. Oh, okay. And there's a there's you know, now that you're watching it, there's little hints of it. There's these dreams with these experimental lights. You know, there's a there you go. There's more experiments. You know, there's a lot of experimenting with Lovely Still too with lights and taking the lens off the camera and, and sh- creating these weird pieces of glass and shooting light through it. Anyways, but there's also a big twist and that kind of comes from being 23 too, of just being like, I'm like, I can't just have this be simple. There's got to be some sort of <laughs> weird complication that makes it. Blah, blah. You can't just make a seventies. Yeah, where it's just, about it's just beautiful. And it, yeah, that's the film I'm going to make probably as a, as a, you know, how old I am now, you know, like that, like make it real simple. But back back then, I was looking for a wow, I'm in the end kind of thing. So, oh, okay. So to me, that's youthful well, too. So that's I'm interested because I hear 23. It's and this is just off the internet. It says first time filmmaker, and then I I look and you're like, you have Martin Landau, you have Ellen Burstyn, you have Elizabeth Banks, uh, Danny Garcia is one of the producers. So I'm always interested when somebody in their first time is working with somebody who's on their 20th, 30th time. Oh yeah, that. I mean, that was, you know, that's how I, to this day, how I like to work. You know, I want to be surrounded by experience. You know, I want to be, I don't want to be the most experienced person on set, especially as the director. You know, your job as a director is to pick the most qualified people and surround yourself with them and just, and create an environment for them to do their work. You know, like that's, to me, one of the biggest jobs of a director, you know, it's like get the talent and and let them do and let them do their thing and at 23 i was so i was like i don't know anything not only am i a first time filmmaker like i i i don't know anything and so the value of martin landau and ellen burston and stephen altman was our production designer who was robert altman's production designer and that's what i thought yeah it's robert altman's son you know so like being able to be on set and we're behind schedule and we're waiting to get the shot done and they're lighting the space and I'm stressing out. And I would turn to Steve and I was like, what'd your dad do right now? And he, and he was like, let them, let them take the time to give them all the time they need to light it and make it look good. Let, let them work. Interesting. So then I would go have to stand up to my producers and be like, we need to give the crew their time to get the thing lit, give the DP the time he needs. You know, it's uh, it was like film school. You know, like you should. I I think it's valuable to all to look at every one of your projects as a, as a another part of going to school. You know, you're learning something. I love that. Yeah, every, every time you're always you're always learning, and you should always be challenging yourself. And for me, a lot of that is hiring people that are have way more experience than me and learning from them. You know, and maybe maybe as I get older and I hit my end of my career, I'll I'll flip it around and. But for right now, I still very much feel like there's a lot to learn. And so I always try to like hire the most experienced people possible. And this isn't like film school. This is like PhD. Yeah, exactly. Um, you're going to sit in PhD class and you haven't even registered for 
the one on one, right? I'm not, not yeah, and don't, and don't even don't even get me started on work with Martin, who's like, you know, yeah, right? well, you know what Hitchcock used to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, and Martin was such an amazing man. You know, I I don't talk about him enough in interviews because he really was someone who he'd sit, you know, as he's waiting instead of waiting in a trailer or waiting in his green room, he'd come out and sit on set light a cigarette, you know, or go outside and light a cigarette and just sit and tell stories. Like wow. that is what he did to the, to anybody, anybody, like if you are a crew member to me, you know, that's, that's what, and that's what was just so amazing about him is he would just sit and tell stories all day long and didn't have any, like, you know, it could be a PA or an extra, you know, and they'd be like, tell us about working with Coppola or Hitchcock or, you know, all the you know, working on Mission Impossible. And he'd just sit and tell stories, you know. And then for oh, that's great. my relationship with him and Ellen both was every morning I'd wake up and I'd be exhausted because I was a 23-year-old kid who stayed up all night, <laughs> you know, while tinkering with the script or I wasn't able to work. But I'm just not a morning person. Even to this day, I'm not a morning person. But wake up early, get picked up go to set and he'd be sitting there. We'd go to the green room and I would just sit and talk about what we're going to shoot today, talk about filmmaking. And I found out like, you know, there's nothing I can do as a director to like, and the only thing I could do was say, this film is really about a 17 year old falling in love for the first time. That's, that's the essence of the feelings. Right. I was just 17 a couple years ago. So here's what I felt. And right. that was sort of my directing relationship with him was like, I can tell you, you're almost in your 80s. Here's a quick flashback to how what it was like for me as a 17-year-old falling in love for the first time. You can use that. And that was, you know, other than that, it was my, he just taught me to let the, let the actors act, you know, give them a playground to experiment right. themselves. And all I'm doing is doing what I can to give them as much space as possible. Interesting. Yeah. So that was a good like film that. school. That was a film school for me too. It's like, very first day on set. Very first day. Okay, you're going to get up. So I walk over to him like, okay, first scene. You stand up out of the bed and you look and you go, ah, okay. And he's like, stop. Don't act out the scene for me. <laughs> yeah. and, I was, and I never did it again. And I never to this day have acted out a scene for an actor because Martin oh, just, man. he stopped that right off the bat. And he was like, tell me what the, go, tell me what the character's going through. Just let me play with it. And that's what we did. I love that. Don't act out the scene. That's great. Oh yeah, that's great. Don't they actors actors hate that? <laughs> you didn't get anything from Tim Burton. You're here to listen to me. Oh yeah. Oh, and of course Tim Burton. Just like tell me stories about Tim Burton. Like I'm such a Tim Burton geek. I was such a Tim Burton geek back then, and to have him tell me Tim stories. And... I always get a kick out of how mellow compared to how what fans we can be are to the people who have worked with people that we. Kind of, oh, yeah, like I met uh, Laszlo Kovacs one time. He gave a talk at my college, and he would talk about Copeland, just be like, so Frank would say, and not arrogant, he'd say, Frank, say this, and Frank, and Frank. <laughs> okay, Copeland's <laughs> Frank. That must be fun. I mean, you know, of course, if you shoot you Easy to, Rider, you're going to be a, But um, anyway. Say Frank. Yeah, oh, exactly. I forget some of the stuff that Martin would always talk about uh, James Dean. Oh, wow. He'd be like, Jimmy, Jimmy. You know what Jimmy said? Blah, 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 you know. 
Of course, of course, yeah. The last thing I want to go into, because uh, I just see it, and I'm always interested where filmmakers are from, you're from Omaha. Yep, I'm sitting in there right now. Here I sitting in Omaha. Awesome. I'm from Hawaii, so sometimes there's like people like, oh, Don Ho, or this artist, or that artist. So, of course, not in a bad way, but is is this kind of like a place where, you know, as you're going into directing your first film or whatever, are you... Is it just natural that you kind of look at some other stuff or do you, do you avoid it to keep your own voice? What, how does that work? Always avoid everything to keep my own voice nice. um, as much as possible. I mean, especially too, because like, here's, here's the truth. Anyone else who's got a screenplay that they've written, if you're listening to this, get ready because you're going to see a trailer in about a month that's basically your idea. So <laughs> don't worry about it. Just don't go watch it. And make your own thing because it's it happens every single time. Um, is I think I you know is there a, is there a spiritual aspect to this? I don't know where it's like it's it's in the air, but it happens every single time. So I try to never let that bother me and just make go make my film. Alexander and I are are two totally different styles of filmmaker, so I don't worry too much about that, you know. And he's a great guy. I see, you know, he lives here too, so I see him all the time. Right. I mean, there, it, there's not like a shadow hanging over me or anything like that, or there's not a competition. If there is, he's won already. That's not, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you know, I like that you say that because I was talking to our producer one time and I was saying something about Snoop Dogg has this or that, and he was just like, well, that's not your audience. So yeah. Yeah. don't worry that Snoop Dogg has that. Because he's supposed to have that and you're not. So Exactly. But I, I love what you said because I, I only mentioned Alexander Payne because the film he made in Hawaii, The Descendants, Yeah. I just loved seeing what, what you said about location. That's part of why I asked it was because it totally felt like one of his usual Omaha films, but it was Hawaii. Yeah. So, and it's great for me because I see something, I'm like, oh, that's where I surfed, that's where I went. So That was so much fun as a, I mean, I was an extra in election when no I kidding. was like, when I was like 10, wow, you know, and that was, you know, I was, I was always been a ham and, you know, you know, I wanted to be involved in filmmaking in some way. And so it was like my mom had knew somebody in the casting department and it was like, do you want to be an extra? And, and, and truly that was one of those moments of like, I want to do this. I want to be, I, I went on set and you see the crew and they're working and the PA tells you like, go over there. You're in the shot. You're in the way. And I'm like, part of me in my head, I'm like, I'm going to tell that PA what to do one day. <laughs> <laughs> and is it that PA just let me have, I got yelled at by a PA. Right, and I feel and like so, it left a so mark you on see, me. He, I, I, I was a PA on the descendants and he's just the nicest bleeping guy. Oh, he's amazing. Just he's am such amazing. a great dude. Very, very kind and always remembers your name. Yep. You know, and <laughs> sorry, he's you got said that it. he's got a weird thing like that. You he just said remembers it. He everybody's said hi to me name. one day. I thought he was talking to someone else. He said it again. I like I almost was like, You're talking to me? Like <laughs> not in that me? people are different, but it was just kinda like, you know, you don't usually go to work and then he's like, Hey, what's up? How's it going? Anyway. Yeah, totally. So, so you were uh the last thing, if you can, is there some main scenes that you're an extra in, or? Oh my gosh, there's a scene where I I could I could point it out to you, oh, okay. to, you know, but I don't think anybody else could. But it was like it was at the village inn after he loses the election, and there's like somebody comes in, and you, if you look in the very back, it's like I'm walking around back there as like a little as a little kid. That's cool. <laughs> that was awesome. 
But he's great. You know, he's he's great. We see each other all the time now, just in the community in Omaha. And, you know, we also, um, uh, all sorts, we got a lot of great filmmakers here. You know, Mike Hill is the editor. Uh, he edited Apollo 13. I was going to say, Ron Howard's editor. Yeah. Ron Howard's editor. And, uh, yeah, we got a, so many good uh, filmmakers Talk here. Talk about an editor that just, you know, film junkie, film nerds, film students. I was always looking at those names. Dan Hanley and Michael Hill. Yep, Michael Hill. And then Mauro Fiore lives in Omaha. He's the uh, DP for Avatar. And Oh, nice. You know, you know I'm, I'm so... I'm so you want an Oscar? I, I've still never seen Avatar because I do have epileptic spells occasionally, so I've just yeah. had to avoid it. But I'm always, I always feel left out. <laughs> oh, man, I hope my... Uh, dance films weren't too hard on you. They got all sorts of crazy oh, things they, that happened. I mean, I had to start and stop, but it was just, you know, I'm I'm used to it by now, so. We did put a, a thing at the front of the... I was going to say, thank you for putting that. I I really think more films need to put that, so. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a, a kind of imperative for mine, too, because I do so much... Uh, with these style of films that I do, like that, they're, there's a lot of strobing and things like that. No, it's, it's good to do. So the last questions I have are just standard... Well, actually, we used to ask all guests, and then we stopped for a little while, so now we're going to return to it. So I have two questions to wrap up, if that's cool with you. Bring it. All right, here we go. Simple. You're you're going to be retiring. You're hanging it up. What's the you, you have the money, the cast, all that stuff, story. What's yeah. the genre you have to do before you uh, retire? Older. Let's. So we're totally just setting the scene. Okay, I'm... <laughs> I'm, I'm an older man. I'm, I'm, I'm George Miller. <laughs> uh, probably, if I'm at that stage in my life, I will probably do the opposite of what I did with Lovely Still, which is like I'm gonna make a teen movie, a film about young people and about life and getting growing as a, a kind of a coming of age. I think that'd be a, a fun challenge myself. And I always just like, what's the trick? What's the trick to make me feel? And I think at that age, the trick to make me feel might be looking back. Okay. Seems to be what seems to be what you do. You'd make pretty in pink with cell phones. Okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The last one would be, it could be any time in your career, but you know, you and your wife are eating cup of noodles. Yeah. Rent's not paid. Uh-oh. Still, you're not going to do this genre even for the money. Oh. You can't ask me that. That's a, that's a, so, oh, I, would, <laughs> I would never say no to anything uh, genre-wise. But let me think. If I had to put one on the bottom of the list, uh, what, are some, what are some genres here? We got sci-fi, horror. I'd love to do something like that. Action, I would love to do action. Drama, love to do drama. Probably something along the lines of like uh, one of those sort of like goofball romantic comedy movies you mean really... like not another teen movie like a spoof of a of a movie or no like an actual like you know like one that's like boy meets girl and it's sort of like the cover of it it's like white and it's like <laughs> the girl and the guy are standing next to each right, other giving them a weird right. look and it's like she didn't know what hit her you know or something like that <laughs> Uh, I like that. Well, the the number one answer from I probably did this at least thirty or forty times. Slasher, like Saw. Yeah, like uh, I would do one of those. And the slasher films, I feel like we've already reached a point now in cinema where so many 
artistic filmmakers, total film school kids, total like film nerd artists who grew up wanting to be Paul Thomas Anderson <laughs> and, you know, watched foreign films. Right. And they are, you know, and they, I feel like there has been something unlocked where they're like, I want to make my really dark four hour long drama that's really experimental and, and this is the new age of filmmaking, but I can't get money for it. So I guess I'll just make a horror film. And then I think we're, and that has opened up the doors for all these, you know, like Ari Aster and all these interesting filmmakers who were like true artists, but they used horror to like get in the door. Right. And horror, it's such a great genre because it's like, it makes its money back. And the investors are like, whatever, as long as there's people dying, and then you can just be like, all right, and you can do these really experimental horror films now that are, that can be beautiful, you know, like Jordan Peele, you know, it's like they opened the door into their artistic self, but they used horror as the like medium because you can get those films made. And so I'm no, I'm no, I'm not the only filmmaker in the last five years who is like, I got to write a horror film because that's how I get to like really experiment it sure seems, it still just seems to be tried and true. I'm pretty much just done with that genre because I was fortunate to produce a couple of things that like came out in stores, but the research to do them was just, so it has to really be like, nope. There has to be like yeah. a real uh, get out. There has to be really something to it that like you're saying, experiments or really pushes the genre somewhere new, which nope to me was just a really awesome Hitchcock fan with, talent and money yeah um and to me it was just jaws like in a desert so um i thought that was really cool and it was close encounters obviously without spoiling anything so yeah uh but anyways, yeah all, I, all that stuff is you know and like that's how i feel too it's like there's so many you know there's so many great like you know hereditary was an amazing film you know it's so so good and so artistically done with such a with such a thought on camera work and tone and pacing it's really amazing how far things have evolved nowadays. And, um, you know, we appreciate you being here and being on the show and uh, coming by and giving your time. And, uh, again, if you want to plug uh, where you can see any of your, your the new films and any of your old films. Yeah, I mean, I'd love for everyone to check out Lovely Still. That's my first film. That's on iTunes and Amazon and all those places. And my second film, Sick Birds Die Easy, uh, is... That'll come out later this year. Go to altrd.tv and check out Hidden Places and watch those experimental modern and contemporary dance films. And then, um, yeah, then I've got shooting a new film in the spring. So this one coming up around the bend. Awesome. Congratulations. Well, uh, as always, we thank you for being here and we uh, wish you all the luck with this. Thank you so much, Paul. I really had a fun time talking film and psychedelics with you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Aloha. Bye. Well, that's going to do it for our conversation with Nick Fackler. You know our motto here at Talking Pictures with Paul Booth, whether it's morning, afternoon, or evening, make sure and watch a good movie. Aloha. Thank you for listening to the Talking Pictures Podcast, real conversation and movie-induced inspiration. 